Can we bow our heads and uh, pray together? Lord God, we pray that in the hearing of your word, we may find that our love for you and for one another is built up, so that it may indeed become the love undying of which your servant speaks. Amen. Well, what are you afraid of? Uh, Death, broken hearts, illness, old age, and financial problems. Those were the, some of you I know uh, won't uh, quite have made it by 6.30. I'm I sit at the front, of course, and I'm told told by others that occasionally people don't make it for 6.30. Um, uh, And those of you who uh, didn't may not have been here when Nigel went through that list of things that we are sometimes afraid of. And what's interesting to me is that it seemed to me that his list was pretty typical of what we can be afraid of. But when we actually ask you to say what you're afraid of, you say snakes and putting your foot in it. Now, um, I'm sure there are good reasons to be fearful of snakes. Um, I, I, I quite like snakes, actually, but that's partly because I'm unlikely to meet ones that will hurt me, whereas Penny, working in Ghana, she was the one afraid of snakes, uh, may well find them to be a little more hostile uh, than, uh, uh, than is the case for us. But it does suggest, doesn't it, that if Nigel's list was correct, but when asked to speak it out loud, we said snakes and putting our foot in it, that we have kind of graduated fears. There's the fears right now. Oh, I might put my foot in it, which is a real fear. Lots of people have it. But then there's those great big backup fears. If we haven't quite got an anxiety um, uh, right now about snakes, we know we can always rely on having an anxiety perhaps about our finances. So I'm going to ask the same question that Nigel asked, but I'm not going to ask you uh, to uh, let anyone know. Uh, If you are someone who, when I ask this question, after uh, half a minute or so, still has nothing to be afraid of, I'd like you to talk to me after the service because I'd like to know your secret. Uh, But I'm going to leave it half half a minute just to, uh, uh, for each one of us to name, uh, for our own sakes, what it is that we are fearful of. Okay, what I want to do tonight is to pick up on that word, um, fearless, that Paul uses at the very end of Ephesians. Uh, He speaks, uh, he wants them to pray for him that he will be fearless. 
Um, I'm a great believer in three-point sermons, uh, but tonight has 11 points. Um, uh, uh, And it's really um, uh, point one, sub-point A through to J, and then point two, which is only a little one. So the main points, there are 10 main points. And because there are 10 main points, let me just think of them as your fingers, if you like. And because it's fearless, just think of yourself being held by 10 fingers um, uh, as we go through. Because what I want to do, because we're coming to the, we are at the end of our series in Ephesians, I want to go through the whole letter and pick up the reasons that we can find in it why Paul might not uh, be fearful, why he might be fearless. The first four concern uh, God's work for us. So go back, and this is going to be, there's going to be a fair bit of uh, uh, flicking of pages. Go back, please, to chapter 1 and verse 4. God chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world, uh, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Uh, You probably know the word holy means being set apart, moved from uh, where you are now, lifted up bodily, as it were, and put down in a a special seat, a seat apart from everyone else. That, That seat is the holy seat for Uh, where those who sit are set apart uh, for God. We are chosen before the creation of the world. So way back, before all things came to be, those who have been singing their heart out in response uh, to the musical lead this this evening, uh, you are chosen. And you have been chosen from before the foundation of the world. How do we know that? because we have been chosen not to be nice, but to be holy. We are set apart. And deep inside you, you will know whether you are or are not set apart, different. Secondly, see, we are moving quickly. Don't worry about the ten points then. So secondly, and the next verse. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, I I make no apologies if you get uh, bored with me saying this because it's such an issue in our time and there there will always be people who who miss it when the language involved in Scripture is the language of being sons, then it's the language of inheritance because only sons could inherit. It doesn't mean that uh, sons are better than daughters. It just means in those times it is those who could inherit. These days, of course, we can all inherit and so, of course, it includes daughters. Uh, But it's not about being uh, uh, simply in the uh, natural family of, the natural children of. Here, if it says sons, it's always about about inheritance. So what we were chosen to be is adopted. Not a bare existence, but a life that promises inheritance. You and I were chosen way back but we look forward to the inheritance that will be ours. We are confident in the relationship that derives from that inheritance that's yet to come. So way back we were chosen, 
we will inherit, and right now, uh, verses 19 to 20 of the same chapter, it is the power of God in us. Let me, uh, I, I probably should read a little more. Uh, I pray also, this is verse 18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Ephesus was stuffed with magic. There were all kinds of alternatives to the living God available. And if you followed us through the series, uh, I hope we've brought out for you this sense to which Paul, as he writes Ephesians, is so confident of Jesus as the one who just kicks every other alternative. Not the hypothetical ones, but the real ones, the devilish, the demonic powers, far, far away. The power that's at work in us is like the working of the strength of God when he raised Christ, thus kicking out every alternative power. So it's not just the power is like the working of his mighty strength when he raised Christ, but the power that is at work in us is powerful against every alternative. That's the power. And then uh, going on, fourth point now, to uh, chapter 2 and verse 5. God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. We were made alive after our death in sin. Well, I can't say for you whether that is your experience as you sit here tonight. Can you say that you have been made alive and you know that your sin is decisively dealt with. If it's not your experience, then you've come to the right place because that's our longing for everyone who sits in those chairs. Interestingly, love in Ephesians is mostly our love for one another. This is the one place most of all, where we get to understand what the love of God is for us. Verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. I wonder whether we can ever get to the bottom of it. I'm never very good at those spiritual gymnastics that invite you to feel just how awful a sinner you are, uh, which invite you to kind of beat yourself up and say, oh, I'm terrible. I, I just, it, it's, it's not that I don't believe it, it's just that I, I can't personally get very far by imagining the awfulness of my sin. 
but I can imagine that I was dead. It's not about more and less. It's an absolute. You were dead in transgressions. We were dead in transgressions, says St. Paul. That I can imagine. Before God, I was dead. Then I was made alive and accepted. Adopted. So those are the four points around God's work. Way back, we were chosen. We were chosen to be adopted, and we have an inheritance to come. Right now, we know the power of God in us. And it feels like, because it is, the experience of being made alive from the dead. Well, Let's go on to our relationship with others. Chapter 2 and verse 15. Sorry, again, as I've made my notes, I've quoted the key verse, but I really need to read from the one before. For he himself is our peace, that's Christ, who has made the two, Jew and Gentile, into one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. So the next set of reasons for Paul not to be fearful is that he knows the peace that God has established with others. And it's established at the cross. Compared to what goes on at the cross, no division between humans can make any sense at all. Because the one great division between God and humankind has been dealt with. So in this section, we might think about all those whom we don't really find easy to get on with by their background. As you can tell, I'm a northerner. Um, and, uh, and I'm deeply proud of being northern. Um, I struggle with all these southern softies that I mix with these days. Um, but having a voice like mine, not many people register that I'm a northerner. It is only Chester, and if you're a real northerner like Brian Mitchell, you don't even think that Chester counts. But, um, yes, I know, I'm getting a nod from Brian. Um, but technically, it's northern, It's uh, in the northern province of the Church of England, and that's the only thing that counts with me. Uh, So some of you will be southerners and have something against northerners. Some of you will be northerners and have something against southerners. Some of you will be easterners, have something against westerners, and so it goes. Some of you will have instinctive reaction against people from a certain background of school. Some of you may be uh, members of the monster-raving loony party, and by definition, you dislike all conservatives, all members of the Labour Party, the Green Party, and the Liberal Democrats. Uh, Maybe you don't even get on with the other member of your party. (laughs) This covers all those people of whom we are suspicious We have peace with them now because the great barrier has gone away. 
but it works out in practice in particular ways. So go forward now, please, to chapter 4 and verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So this is no longer people from whom you're different by background, or by taste, or something like that. It's now the people that you're not at ease with because there's something between the two of you. Something where kindness and compassion should be being called out of you as you forgive the other person, because there's something that is to be forgiven. And again, it's the same reason. With the cross of Jesus Christ behind us, how can we not forgive? Well, I think that pretty much covers it, doesn't it, in terms of our relationship with others. There's those we've got something against because they've done something horrible to us, and there's others whom we have something against because they're, well, the people you have something against. It's obvious that you're not going to like northerners or southerners or people who play tennis when you play football or whatever it may be. So those two more, uh, uh, give us two more of the, the fingers holding us up, if you like. And then we've got the issue as we uh, move on through to the last uh, four uh, of the work that is for us to do. And I'm going to take it in what seems to me the logical order, though picking out themes means we dot around a bit all over the place. Go back now to chapter 4 and verse 16. We've thought about what God's work in us has been. We've thought about those with whom we undertake the work. Now, what is the work? Well, God's purpose for the church is that it should, according to verse 16 of chapter 4, grow and build itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, this is very much at the end of teaching around the gifts of the Holy Spirit to God's church, in which each one of us is making our contribution distinctively, uh, equippedly, giftedly, And yet, in all that diversity, united in being part of the whole body. Is that your experience? I'm going to guess that it is sometimes, and it isn't always. And again, if you do not know what your giftedness is, then how can you set about fulfilling what it is for you to be part of that process of building up in love as each part does its work. Um, well, I, uh, Will is going to be working over the next uh, few months to think with others. How do we get back to finding out again what our giftings may be? So if you've got any question about your giftings, then uh, do take them to Will, our curate, um, who will have an answer for you in several months' time. That's the purpose for God's church. Uh, And our confidence in what you might call our job, that's the next uh, element of our ten, is to be found in chapter 3 and verse 8. 
Although I, that's Paul, am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Because that, for Paul, is the great astonishing mystery that Jew and Gentile have been brought together in the purposes of God. Gentiles aren't going to know that unless someone tells them. And Paul was the man appointed from the very beginning to be that man. Is there any reason to suppose that the grace that was given to you should be less known by you than was the grace that was given to Paul. I can't think of one. What grace, then, has been given to you if that grace was given to him? I don't know, but it will be part of that upbuilding of the church, part of that addressing the world, part of doing what you're there to do in the calling of God's Holy Spirit. And that mention of the Holy Spirit reminds us of how we are to work. Chapter 5 and verse 18, we've focused on these quite a lot as we've gone through. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And you'll remember, perhaps, from Will's sermon on that, that this is about our behavior We're to speak, we're to sing, we're also to submit, we're also to run our relationships in ways that honor the other person more than ourselves. And then finally, chapter 6 and verse 10, same point that has been made uh, in um, uh, at the very beginning in chapter 1, because he keeps coming back to this, because he knows what it is that the issue is going to be, finally, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You see, strength and power are going to be needed because whatever that giftedness, that grace is for us, it will be opposed. And he wants us to know the power of Christ in us by his spirit to overcome that opposition. Now, uh, I've seen a few pens uh, going during this. I I have a terrible habit when um, someone says there are ten points, uh, I get back to my notes and I discover that I wrote nine down. So I'm going to run through them once again because it's really annoying. So the first four are election in, in Christ. Secondly, our election to adoption. Thirdly, the power of God in us. And fourthly, our own resurrection then our relationship with others, our peace with others, and our forgiveness of others. That takes us to six. Then God's purpose for the church, seven. Our confidence in our work, eight. The spirit-controlled life, nine. And getting us back then to the power of God. Now, one of the things I find fascinating... Is all of this, the work of the Spirit, the work of Christ, the work of God. Wouldn't it be really so much easier if with all that stuff that God has had going on, 
from before the beginning of time. Wouldn't it be so much easier, since he's really quite capable, quite powerful, and really quite strong, if he just slapped a great big star in the sky and said, here it is, believe it, you lot. Or something perhaps a little subtler. But if he did that, he's done everything else. He's chosen us. He's given us inheritance. He's given us power. He's raised us from the dead. He's made us okay with one another. He's given uh, a, 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 a joy to the church. He's done everything else. Why doesn't he just write in the sky? And the answer is because he loves us. He wants us to partner with him in the work that has gone on from all eternity. Because of those points, one to ten, we are held and we can fearlessly declare, fearlessly make known, back to our text tonight, the mystery of the gospel. It's just like Joshua. Be strong and very courageous. And Joshua could have turned around and said, I don't feel like being strong and very courageous. If you're so strong, God, why don't you do it? We can always back off and say, God, why don't you do it? And the truth is because he's always wanted from all eternity a people who will not just let him get on with it, but will be his, and with whom and through whom, and by whom he will work. Paul uh, tells us that the days are evil. And we may reply that they aren't for us. Our days are really pretty comfortable. All of this, these ten points, this light, strength, beauty, love, purity, glory, patience, let's remember these come from a man in prison awaiting execution. We, on the other hand, have work to go to tomorrow, and on the whole, we are facing life, not death. Perhaps the hard thing for us, then, is to realize that the same truths apply to us as they did to St. Paul. The gospel is as true for us as for him. The powers in the heaven fight back against us as much as they did against him. The spirit is as powerful for us as for him. Other people are as much set at peace with one another as Jews and Gentiles were. But we are not, on the whole, facing death. And that may mean that we are not prepared to make the radical choices, the radical decisions that Paul wants us to make. See, one of the things that I noticed when I put all that list together, and I I put the list together first, and then I looked back over it, and I thought, what's simply astonishing is that not one element of those ten points actually involves looking at things the way the world does. In fact, the world can't even see those things. And that, finally, is why Paul can be fearless. Because what he is seeing, what he is recognizing in those ten points, 
is what is really going on, even though it can't be seen. So the appeal to ourselves as we come to the end of Ephesians has to be something like this. Look at your life. Take a good look at it. Look hard at it. It's landscape. It's people, it's relationships, it's hopes and desires, it's fears and disappointments. But when you've done that, take a completely different look at it, because you will not see any of those ten points in all that I just said. You will only find those ten points if you go back into the Word of God and stake your life on those things being true. If you want to know the secret of fearlessness, it means believing this stuff when your life seems to be giving you everything else. At the very end, Paul says, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. That's the point. Every single love in this life looks like it dies. And Paul is staking his life on this, that it doesn't die. It's worth staking your life upon this, that this love rises. Consider your mission in life. Is it actually the one you feel called to, or is it just the one you're kind of getting on with? for lack of anything else. If your life were dominated by Ephesians 1 through to Ephesians 6, if your life were dominated by what you cannot see, what would you not do for Jesus? As uh, a 19th century cricketer and missionary once said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And it, all of that perhaps explains why I feel a little nervous at the end of this series of sermons. You see, I know that what people ask for is practical tips to get us through tomorrow. But Paul doesn't want to see you through tomorrow. He wants to see you through eternity. And that doesn't just mean adding a few more tips over the ones that will get you through tomorrow. It's taking a whole new look. It's like taking off your head, putting on a new one, or putting your head the other way around, and seeing the whole thing of life differently, not just a bit helped. Saying you are raised from death to a congregation who don't look very different, I imagine, from the way they did before they were raised to death, from death, doesn't seem very practical, but only if it isn't true. If it is true, then it's the motor for everything else. You do not need little tips. You can work those out for yourself. You just need, in that case, for everything, everyone else to get out of the way because something extraordinary is going on. You have finally got it that actually those things, those ten points, those are the reality that are bigger than every other thing that you thought of when you were asked during the service, what are you afraid of? If Jesus really is coming back as we remember on Advent Sunday, then how should tomorrow be different? Where are my little tips? It's not difficult to say. The answers are dotted through Ephesians. But they all depend 
on its being true, what we may feel that we have to sort of nod to, that yes, there is a day when Jesus Christ will return. It's not obvious. We can hang our stars and we can put our banner out, but it's not obvious. Yes, the sky will be rolled up and the earth overwhelmed. Is that practical? Yes, it is, but only if it's true. Paul went to prison and lived in the expectation of being executed. That's how much he staked on the gospel being true. So we pray together. Lord, may I stake my life on the truth of your gospel, for which your servant was in chains, and for which your son gave up his life. Amen.